Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have now reached 30,000 feet. You may now use all your electronic devices, including your laptop. jumping right into Matthew chapter 7, and the idea of this series, if you're uh, just visiting with us or coming uh, for, you know, you haven't been around for a while, is that uh, we're calling this series Altitude Adjustment, that there's something when we change the attitude, when, when, the Lord, when we allow the Lord to change our attitude, it, it elevates us kind of above the fray of this world, and, and it sets us apart. It doesn't make us better, but it sep- separates us and, and sets us apart, and uh, and so we're just going to jump right into uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 11, and uh, it's pretty clear. This one's not super ambiguous. Jesus just says to his disciples and says to us this morning, do not judge. Don't judge. All right. That's good, right? We, we're good? Just don't. Don't judge, and we can get out of here early and beat Cornerstone to lunch today, and don't judge. Don't do it. The interesting thing about speaking on being judgmental is, first of all, you're like, I'm not judgmental, and you're judging me for even speaking on judgmentalism. Or we think in our head, you know what? I have somebody in mind that needs to be here and hear this message, or they need, I hope they're tuning in online because this message on judgmentalism is for them. Never do we ever say, I'm one of the most judgmental people in the world. I think I need this message this morning. We don't say that. We say, we, we say things like, well, I'm not judgmental. I'm right. I'm right. And I'm right most, if not all of the time. But I think we could at least acknowledge the fact this morning that maybe there are places in our life, and hopefully by the time we get done with the message today, by the time we get done sharing with you, that we could acknowledge that there might be places in our life where we are more guilty of becoming judgmental or or of being judgmental than we care to admit. I feel like as Christians, we've, we've kind of learned. I don't know where we learn it from, probably our flesh, but we've kind of figured out this way to cover up our judgmentalism. We do it with the Word of God, typically. And here's just some of the things that I'm judgmental about. So I'll just be the first because I know it's uncomfortable, you know, for any of us to admit any sort of weakness in our life. And for you who are like, I don't know, I'm, you know, he might be judgmental, but I'm not. I'll, I'll just tell you, I'm judgmental. I am. I, I'm, I'm judgmental of people who uh, give me Miracle Whip and tell me that it's mayonnaise. I'm judgmental of those people. I, I, think, that, I think there's something wrong with that. I, I'm judgmental of people who put their Christmas decorations up before Thanksgiving. I've got a real problem with this. How many of you already have your Christmas? Just show of hands. Everybody was vulnerable early. Show of hands. All of, I want everybody to look around the room, and I, I want you to know that I'm judging these people. 
And I think that we skip over Thanksgiving, and I like Thanksgiving. And I think you guys that just raised your hand need to go home and take your decorations down. And then on Friday, you can put them back up, all right? I'm judgmental of Washington Husky fans. I don't, I don't even think they have a place in my life. I just, there's things that we just rush to judgment with. But maybe a little bit more seriously, I, I found that, that I'm judgmental of people who carry the name of Jesus publicly, but use it to wound other people. I'm judgmental of people who I feel like are judgmental. And I don't think Jesus this morning wants to let us off all that easy today. I think there's something that he wants to speak to each of us. We get this picture, though, don't we, when we are judgmental? We get this picture that Jesus is on our side, that Jesus has got his arm around us saying, I'm with you, I'm backing you on this one. I feel like, like you're right and they're wrong. And we're like, yes, Jesus, that's what I've been telling you. And, and, and that's why I'm judge, judging these people. It's why we think we're non-judgmental. Because we think we're right. We think that Jesus is on our side. And, and I just want to propose to all of us this morning, myself included, that this message might not be for somebody else. It actually might be for me and you. There's a study done in a book called Unchristian by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons a number of years ago. They did a survey of young people and asked them what they thought of Christians. <laughs> it's always fun. Um, they gave them a number of different words to choose from. And there were three words that rose to the top. And 87% of the people outside of the Christian faith, outside of the Christian faith, they perceived that those who are followers of Jesus as being judgmental, hypocritical, and anti-gay, 87%. So I think it's important for us to just realize that anytime we are talking to somebody who isn't in the church or uh, anybody who is, uh, doesn't have a frame of reference to what it, me, what it really means to be a follower of Jesus, that when we communicate to them who we are and as Christians, that we're already coming into a situation in which they've drawn conclusions about us. And the, the number one word in that is that we are judgmental. And we cannot like that. We can, you know, say, well, that's not fair. They don't know me. I'm just not sure that that's really working. Like to just say, well, you know, that's judgmental. They're, they're being judgmental of me for thinking that I'm judgmental of them. And we can make that argument, but I just don't know that it's all that helpful. Maybe what these people are picking up on is something that we should wrestle with ourselves. Maybe there's some work that needs to be done where we need to just take a look in the mirror and say, Jesus, is there some things in my life that's contributing to people feeling this way? Are they calling out a part of us that he wants to refine, that he wants to shape in each of us, and he wants to bring about healing? Even though I didn't think I was judgmental, what, is, what I found, and, and as I've been kind of studying for this message and pulling resources and reading some things, what I found is that there are some pieces of me that actually like judging other people. That's not a good feeling, but it's a reality. 
Because there's something about when, when I judge someone else, there's something about that that lifts me up, that makes me feel better about myself. Well, what Jesus is saying is, he's just saying, you know what, when you do that, when you judge people, you're going to get yourself into some trouble. So he says, do not judge. We got this word judge, it's a massive word. We all have some ideas in our head of what this means. And I'll tell you first what it doesn't mean. What Jesus isn't saying here is that, that, that we shouldn't think, right, that When Jesus says, do not judge, he doesn't mean don't think. You have a brain, use your brain, think. The second thing he doesn't mean is that you've got to agree with everyone. That's impossible. You know how I know it's impossible for Christians to agree with with one another? Because we have almost 2,000 churches in San Antonio. If, If we all agreed on everything, there would be one massive church, right? But... I know churches that have split because they couldn't agree on the color of the carpet. So we're not going to agree on everything. And Jesus is not saying we have to agree on everything. And finally, he doesn't mean that when we disagree with somebody and we think that there's maybe a better way, that we just have to keep quiet, that we have to hold our tongue, sit on our hands. And it says, do not judge, so I can't judge and I can't say anything. That's not what Jesus means here. So what does he mean? The word judge in the Greek is the word krino. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. I never, I am? Well, thank you for that affirmation in my life. Thank you for not judging me on not knowing that. This word krino is really not all that helpful to us. So you're like, well, why are you bringing it up? I just think it's important for you to understand that there is so many different things that that one word can mean. It means to make a moral judgment, a judicial decision. It means to enforce a law or to exact a lawsuit. It means God's judgment. It means condemnation. It means all of these things. And so when we read the words of Jesus, we start going, Jesus, like, what's the nuance? What's the part of it that you want us to hear? What is it that you mean when you say, do not judge? Well, I was made aware of a diagram by a man named Sky Jathani, and I think it paints a really good picture of what Jesus means when he's talking about on judgment. I think they'll throw it up on the screen here. There's a wide range of of meaning that judgment could simply mean to discern. And it also could mean to condemn. And in the case of the discern that there are apples and that there are oranges and you put them together and you simply say that apples are not oranges. That's discernment. It's an observation. It's, a moral, it's not a moral decision. It's, it's just an observation. Apples are not oranges. But the other side of this diagram is not just discernment, but it's condemnation, that apples are actually less than oranges. God hates apples. Death to apples. The word krino in the Greek simply means to separate, but, but we often take it further than just separating, and that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about discernment. In fact, we're commanded to discern. As Christ followers, we are to be a people of discernment. We have the Holy Spirit in us, and he's given us a spirit of discernment, and it, we see that all throughout scriptures. The Sermon on the Mount would make no sense to us if we didn't have the ability to have discernment. 
The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church of Corinth says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So what Paul says is the Spirit of God in you gives you the ability to discern what's going on in this world. That's a really good thing. We need that. But how many of us know that discernment can quickly, quickly turn to condemnation? That it's now no longer just apples and oranges, but that oranges are less than apples, or apples are less than oranges, and God hates apples, death to apples. The condemnation is, is pronouncing a verdict. He's, uh, condemnation is, is taking out the gavel and playing judge and saying, not only is that thing you believe wrong, but you are wrong. God thinks you're wrong. Death to you. It's people who set themselves up as moral guides. It's people who want to point out everything that's wrong in the world and everything that's wrong in everybody else's life. They critique one another. That's judgment. That's who Jesus is talking about here. People who carry around the gavel, not just discerning, but actually saying you're wrong in the very core of your being. It's why judgment is so painful. If you've ever been judged by somebody, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say you probably have, you know the pain of trying to carry that, that burden of being judged. You know the pain of trying to carry out what is it, I know what they're saying I am, but what is it really that God is saying I am? But sometimes because the voices around us that are judging us are so loud, we fail to hear the voice of God and who He says that we are. It's not just saying something's wrong, it's saying someone is wrong. And Jesus just tells His disciple, He's like, there's a better path for us, there's a better way in this. The early church wrestled with these words that Jesus talked about. In fact, Jesus' own brother, James, uh, is echoing these words in chapter 4 of his book in verse 11 through 12. It says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. This is really, really important for us to hear. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? He says, when we put ourselves in the place of God, when we become the judge, when we judge somebody, really what we're saying is, I'm God and you need to listen to me because I'm right. The bad news for all of us this morning is we're not God. And even when we are right, we're still not God. And that's what James says. He's judging, uh, in judging, we make the same mistake that Adam and Eve made, right? That they, they, they find themselves, and they're setting themselves up in the garden as, as not citizens of the kingdom of God, but as God. John Wesley wrote this. He says, the, the judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. 
And so the reality is, is that you and I have been placed uniquely, I believe specifically, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. We have been placed there as citizens of the kingdom of God, not as God. To be a citizen of his kingdom, and this is kind of, I got so many points this morning and I'm all over the place, but the citizen, to be citizens of his kingdom is to be life-giving, not judgment-pronouncing. As citizens of his kingdom, we don't walk around casting judgment and pronouncing judgment upon people. No, we walk around bringing life and hope to the world that we live in. But can we just admit that it's hard? It's hard for us, especially those of us who really understand Scripture and, and spend a time wrestling with the words of Jesus. It's easy for us to, uh, to have the Bible in one hand and, uh, and the gavel in the other hand and, and, and to say to someone, this is what God's Word says, and, and so if you've got to do it this way, and if you don't do it this way, then you're wrong. We want to play the role of the Holy Spirit. We want to play the role of their conscience. And I'm convinced that Actually, we are pretty bad at that. But I'm also confident that the Holy Spirit knows exactly when to bring conviction in someone's life. He knows. He knows how to bring matters of conscience. But when we play the role of the Holy Spirit in someone's life, what happens is we misdirect the battle with God onto ourselves. And we're not really qualified for that. But then we're left with this kind of burning question, aren't we? Well, okay, I understand that we're not to judge people and all of that. Are there any occasions where Christians should confront each other on matters of behavior? And the answer to that question is yes. Neil Anderson says it like this. He says, we are required by God to confront and restore those who have clearly violated the boundaries of Scripture. Jesus instructs in Matthew chapter 18, he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in order for us to kind of move forward with this new illumination that yes, we are to Uh, confront and have conflict with people who have compromised the word of God, I think it's important for us to make the distinction between discipline and judgment. Discipline is uh, is an issue of confronting an observed behavior. I'm just going to tell you right now, as Christians, we we get this one wrong a lot. See, what happens is we want to confront people with issues that we've heard, issues that we've assumed, and and all of those things, but not anything that we've actually witnessed. Judgment is an issue of attacking someone's character. And we're instructed to confront others concerning sins that we have observed, but we're not supposed to judge their character. Disciplining others is a part of our ministry Judging character, that's God's job. That's his responsibility. I'll give you an example of this, kind of a practical example of it. Imagine if you caught your son in a lie, and you 
look at your son and you say, you're a liar. That's a judgment of their character. You are labeling them a liar. But if you shifted that and you said, son, you just told a lie, that is a discipline. You are holding him accountable for an observed behavior. You're not labeling them, you're not defining their character, you are recognizing an observed behavior that is contrary to what Jesus would want for our life. When you discipline others, it must be based on something that you have seen or heard personally, not on something you suspect, not on something that you have heard through the grapevine or heard from other people. If you confront their behavior and they do not respond to you, the next time you're to bring two or three witnesses of their sin. If they won't own up to their sin and repent, what do we do? Do we just let them off the hook? Do do they just get away with it? This may be hard to hear, but the answer is yes. Yes. But I would just encourage you with the fact that God isn't done with them. That you are not God, you are not the Holy Spirit in their life, and it doesn't begin and end with your addressing it. Much of what we call discipline is nothing less than character assassination. We say things to our disobedient children, you, you're dumb, you're worthless, you, what's, what's the matter with you? Or we say to those who are Christians around us who fall and make mistakes, we say to them that they're not good Christians or, you know, because they cheated on their taxes, they're a thief. Or statements that don't necessarily correct the behavior but actually condemn their character. I want you to hear me when I say this because I think it's very important that we all understand that we must hold people accountable for their sinful behavior. But we are never allowed to denigrate their character. We have this proclivity to judge, don't we? It comes natural almost to us, especially if we feel that it's God's will. And I would just tell you this morning that Jesus urges us, in fact, he, I think he's pleading with us in the Sermon on the Mount. He is saying to us, don't posture yourself as God. Posture yourself as a citizen of his kingdom. One thing I've noticed is that I tend to put down the gavel, so to speak, when I'm around people that think like I do. They behave like I do. They, they look like I do. Right? They, they, they just think that way. It's, it's pretty rare that I ever pound down the gavel of people who are just like me. So maybe the question that I would want us to wrestle with is, in just a really practical way, is why is it better for us to live in this world in a non-judgmental way? He gets really practical. He lures us into this desire, I think that's in all of us, to have the good life, to live the good life. Jesus just says, in a really practical way, he says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. I don't want to be judged. 
Do you want to be judged? Nobody wants to be judged. So if you want to live a good life, don't judge people. Because for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And I would argue that when you judge, oftentimes it's not always the same measure back, it's worse. There's some debate as to whether or not Jesus is talking about temporal judgment, earthly judgment, or is he talking about uh, the final judgment, that when we get to heaven that there's a judgment that's going to take place. I think that this, the evidence best points towards the fact that he's talking about a temporal earthly judgment, that, that you could reframe the language to say, if you're a jerk to somebody, they're going to be a jerk back to you. That's, that's the judgment. Jesus says judgment is like a boomerang. How many of you, so I'm going to age myself a little bit, but I thought this would maybe be a nice little break in this and a memory down uh, or a nostalgic stroll down memory lane. There it was. It was just, and then I got it. Um, How many of you, when you were a kid, had, uh, it was like, it had three prongs. It was made by Nerf and you fold it up and you throw it and it came back to you. It was like a boomerang. I don't know much about boomerangs, but I had one of those, and, and I could count on the fact that I could throw that thing, and it would always come back to me. And I would just argue that when we judge people, we can anticipate, as much as I could anticipate that thing circling back to me, we can anticipate that judgment is coming our way. He's not saying that the, this is the same thing as those who believe in karma. This isn't We don't believe in Christian karma. That's not even a thing. What Jesus is teaching is simply playing out. He says, if you judge other people, they're going to have a more critical eye towards you. If you lead a moral majority and have a moral failure, guess what? There's going to be people who have magnifying glasses up to your life. We see this played out in in the ministry all the time where you have pastors who preach a moral majority, they preach this stuff and then they have an affair or they embezzle money or they, they fail morally. And what do we do? We judge that. And I'm not saying it's even wrong to, in those kinds of situations because I would say it's, it's wrong to judge them. It's not wrong to call out the behavior. But the behavior doesn't always define the character. Jesus says it's simply that the way the world works. If you're going to be a politician and you're going to stand up and preach morality, then you better not turn over your phone. Here's the second thing he says, though. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Jesus is doing here what every pastor since the beginning of time has attempted to do. He's trying to be funny. And we always fail at it, you know, especially this morning. Um, Jesus is saying there's this log that's sticking out of your eye, and the disciples are like, yeah, you have a log sticking out of your eye. And you're trying to address this tiny little speck in your brother's eye. He's trying to be humorous here, and he says, how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You're a hypocrite. So here's the second thing that Jesus says about judgment. Number one, he says, to be citizens of the kingdom is to be life-giving, not judgment-pronouncing. But number two, judgment is always hypocrisy. 
always. The reason why judgmental and hypocrisy came up in that book as number one and number two is because judgmentalism is hypocrisy. Because you and I could always be judged for something. There is something in our life that's off. There's some, an area in our life that's not completely fulfilled and, and is still broken. There's some ways that we are resisting the invitation of Jesus to bring it to completion. There's something we could always do to be judged. And how many of us are grateful that God doesn't act like that towards us? He's not waiting for us to fail. He's not waiting for us to, to, to confront us and to, to nail us to the wall. He's just saying, listen, when we start to point out the speck in our brother's eye, what we're actually doing is we're feeding our own arrogance. We're feeding our own pride. And that's often the log that's sticking out of our eye. Judgmentalism is typically fueled by self-righteousness and pride. That's Jesus' point. It's fueled by self-righteousness and pride. The problem is that self-righteousness is probably one of the most acceptable sins in churches today. It's the hardest to detect. It's the easiest to defend. That I'm just right. And there's nothing that I can do about being right. Can we just admit for a moment today that we pick and choose which sins we want to judge? We do. And we pick and choose how harshly we're going to judge them. In the book I referenced earlier in Unchristian, it says, Our research with Christians confirmed that often we miss the point of reflecting Jesus to outsiders because we are too busy catering to the expectation of other believers. That one hurts. We just want everybody to be happy. Let, let me say it like this. At Lifehouse, our goal as a church those of you watching online, I would want you to hear this as well, that, that we are a collection of people that are not perfect. We are sinners. We, Jesus has called us out of that. He has called us to be saints, but we are not perfect. We don't gather under the, ba under the banner of goodness or perfection. We gather under the banner of grace and mercy. That every time we walk through the doors and we drive onto this property or we click the TV on or open up our, our phones and our computer and we listen to the message, we are coming to this place making the declaration that I need God's mercy today. That's who we are as a church. Jesus asks us a question, in light of who you are, what right do you have to judge? And the answer to that is we don't have any right at all. He says in verse 5, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see, see clearly. Jesus is saying, sometimes we just don't see clearly. Have you ever tried to untangle the mess of trying to figure out your motivation for something? Like, Have you ever, have you ever struggled trying to figure out, like, like, why did I say that? Why did I act that way? Why did I do that? It's, it's pretty difficult, right? It's hard for us to untangle that mess. And I would just propose this morning that determining your motivation is really, really difficult, but determining somebody else's motivation is almost impossible. It's almost impossible. 
so what Jesus is saying is because of these reasons, judgmentalism is one. It's like a boomerang. It's, it's coming back your way. It's always hypocrisy. And it's often a misperception that maybe we're reading a situation wrong because we have a log in our own eye and we're not seeing clearly because that's true of judgment. Jesus says, man, judgment is really, really unhelpful. Have you ever judged or condemned somebody and they went back to you and said, thank you so much. I'm so glad you slammed the gavel down in my face. It was really helpful. Have you ever had that? If you have, like that person is on their way to sainthood and, you know, it just, it's not how it happens. But Jesus doesn't leave us there in this amazing phrase. Jesus leads us out of that place and he's saying, we don't want to live this way. That's not a, a good way to live. We don't want to live as people who are judgmental of the people around us. But here's the problem is we do have people in our lives that we feel are making bad decisions. We have people in our life who feel like if they keep going down that road, it's not going to end well for them. There's people we know that are standing on the edge of a cliff. So what do we do? How do we handle those situations? How do we talk to those people? Have you ever read the Gospels and and thought, you know, Jesus, there's just something about Jesus. He figured it out. He didn't say easy things. He said really hard things. He gave really hard truths. He didn't say what people wanted to hear. And yet, people who didn't want to hear it, they continued to gather and listen to him. He spoke truth honestly, and yet people seemed to love him. Have you ever realized that Jesus looks a lot different than the church today? So what is it about him? What is it that how he treated people and the way he interacted that allowed him to be this non-judgmental, life-giving presence in this world. I like how Ryan Paulson says it. He says, instead of carrying around a gavel, Jesus carries around a flashlight to point things out, to show us truth, to invite us to align our lives with it. And that's where he goes in this next section on the Sermon on the Mount. He says it this way, he says, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. His, here's the thing, is we read these scriptures, and I think in our minds we're thinking, well, then we're not allowed to ever do speck removal. But actually what Jesus is anticipating and is, is expecting is that we as Christ followers will do some speck removal. That will be a part of it. But... But what he's saying is is that the people who are doing speck removal would speak truthfully and honestly and life-giving into the people that we're removing the speck from. If you're going, well, how do we do that when I got a big old log sticking out of my own eye? Well, you have to address the log first. There's a sermon I came across a couple years ago that really helped me. I want to just give you these points because I'm not saying that I'm not judgmental. Because the second you say you're not judgmental, you're probably judging. I mean, it's self-righteousness. It's like saying, I'm one of the most humble people in the world. Uh, No, I'm not. But this was super helpful for me, these points. And I just want to share them with you. The first one is this, is examine ourselves honestly. 
You can't be helpful for someone else if you're not first humble. If we don't do the hard work of laying our lives bare before Jesus, if we don't do the hard work of praying the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139 where he says, Search me, O God, and know me. Point out if there's any way offensive or wicked within me and lead me in the path of righteousness. If we don't lay ourselves open and bare and we're not willing to be vulnerable and humble in these kinds of situations, what will happen is our pride will completely shut everything down. We won't be able to have the ability to give life-giving truth to other people. Instead, we'll have completely shut them down to anything that we have to say and the reality is, is when, we, when our pride gets in the way, we are not equipped to do the hard work of speck removal. Listen, oftentimes people want to remove the speck while still sitting on their high horse. And it's impossible. We have to be willing to dismount our high horse and humble ourselves and be vulnerable with one another. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Wounded Healer, put it this way. He says, experience tells us that we can only love because we were born out of love. That we can only give because our life is a gift. And that we can only make others free because we are set free by him whose heart is greater than ours. When we have found the anchor places for our lives in our own center, we can be free to let others into the space created for them and allow them to dance their own dance, sing their own song, and speak their own language without fear. He goes on to say in that same book, he says, and maybe with a little bit more clarity, he says, the great illusion of leadership is to think that a person can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. That this is divine, spirit-driven work. This is where the rubber meets the road in the church. How are we going to address these kinds of things with one another? This is where the rubber meets the road in how we're going to respond and react to people who look differently and act differently and think differently than us in this world. So Maybe one of our practices this week is to just get silent before the Lord and pray David's prayer and say, Search me, O God. Point out the things that are offensive in me. And lead me in the path of everlasting life. If we're going to be helpful, we first have to be honest and we have to be humble. Here's what he says next. He says, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. So this whole approach is how do we as Christ followers become speck removers? People who care about others in such a way that we go... Listen, I just see something in your life. There's this speck in your life that's affecting the way that you see. And I'm not trying to judge you in it. I just want to come alongside you, and I want to walk with you, and I want to help you because I think you'll be better for it. It's not a, you've got a speck in your eye, you're wrong. It's you've got a speck in your eye, let me help. So number two, we aim, our aim ought to be for wholeness and restoration. That's the goal. It's not to be right. The goal is to be helpful. It's easy to just try to be right, but it takes discernment in order for us to, to really come into that. It takes wisdom to come to another person and help them with a the speck. It's what we see. It's 
The way that we look at it, John in his book in chapter 3 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn. And that word condemn is the same Greek word, it's krino. He didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world, to heal it, to bring it to a place of restoration through him. And we think, well, is there any situation where we speak truth and, and, and where maybe we offend people, but it's, it's, it's offensive, but it's not our fault. We're just trying to speak to them in truth and in love. And the answer is yes, Paul did this. When he's writing to, back and forth to the church in Corinth, he, he says this. He, he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Think about that. He's, he's like kind of laying on them like, hey, you've got some specs here and this spec and this spec. And, and if that offended you, if that brought sorrow to you, I don't regret it. He says, though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you. I didn't know that it was going to hurt you, but I see now that it hurt you. But only for a little while, because yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry. I'm not happy that you were hurt or that you were made sorry, uh, but that because your sorrow led you to a place of repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. The invitation to people is to repentance, it's to life, it's, it's to wholeness and healing, not condemnation. Repentance always leads us to life. The third thing that we that when doing spec removal is always important is, is to always operate from a place of relationship. And I think that this would probably go a long way to address much of what we experience in churches today, in Christians, is we try to address the speck in someone's eye with zero to no relationship. What we would rather do is we would rather drop these truth bombs that are true. But the only reason for a bomb is to destroy. And so we drop these truth bombs without knowing the ramifications of what it is that we're saying or doing. And, and it's hurtful and it destroys and it doesn't bring life and restoration and wholeness. It does the opposite. Think about it. it have you ever seen in a, in a Facebook post that somebody is dropping a truth bomb and then in all of the comments of that section it says, you know what, you're absolutely right, you've changed my mind. No. And if you have that, again, then you surround yourself with really good people. But I've never seen that. Instead, it's like, I'm going to drop a truth bomb and see what happens. We typically don't change when we hear something from people who we don't think care about us. And what Jesus is saying is that speck removal, life-giving presence, is going to be necessary in people's, in the lives of others. Fourth, and I don't know if it's four or five, whatever, it doesn't matter. We've got 16, no, I'm just kidding. We patiently pursue co cooperation. When uh, Kelly and I were raising our kids, I mean, we're still raising them to a point, but uh, when they were little, uh, we had one of our children in particular that, I won't name which one, uh, but that did not like getting splinters. Nobody really likes getting splinters, but it would hurt them, and they would come, and they would say they have a splinter in their hand, and we would say, okay, well, we got to remove the splinter. 
well, there was no way that this child was going to let me anywhere close with tweezers. Because the thought and the perception of removing the splinter was going to be, the pain was going to be worse than just leaving it in there. But we know as parents that the only way to be free from the pain is to remove the splinter, right? Yes, that's the answer. If not, it, you're horrible parents and you've got a bunch of infected kids. The answer is yes. And so what, you, what, what do you do with a child that doesn't want you to remove the splinter? You sit on them. You pin them down. You, you hold them until you can get that finger stabilized enough to remove the splinter. That's what you do. The problem is, is when it comes to judgment, if you don't have cooperation, or when it comes to removing, sorry, when it comes to removing the speck from someone's eye, if you don't have their cooperation, you don't get to just sit on them and pin them down and try to remove the speck forcefully. That doesn't work. You have to have a cooperation from the other person. Maybe a better approach would be something like if if you ask the question, if you were wrong, would you even want to know in that situation? And would you invite me into that conversation with you and Jesus? Do I have that place in your life? But when you ask the question, please, please follow it up with just listening. Because we always want to interact with gentleness. We always want to interact. We always want to come from a place of care and restoration and wholeness in their life. Jesus uses this analogy, this imagery of an eye. Because if you're doing work on an eye, you don't get to just slash around there. You've got to be pretty specific and delicate. And you've you've got to be careful as you address it. It's the same exact thing that the Apostle Paul says when he writes to the church of Galatia. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore. Our aim is wholeness and healing. You should restore that person gently. It's the picture in the Greek of setting a bone. You do so with great care because you know it's painful. And your your focus is not on you being right It's like, I'm right that it's broken, but I want to help fix that. Your focus is on the other person. Jesus says in number 12, 7, I don't know, says that we are to work with gentleness. Finally, this is what he says in in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I think that's pretty That clears everything up. I think the point Jesus is making is exactly in line with the point that he's already made. He's saying, is a pearl a good thing? Yeah, it's a treasure. Have you ever seen a pig wear pearls? No, you haven't. The the answer is no to that. Except for that one. The right answer is no. A pearl is a good thing, but what does a pig, not this pig, what does a normal pig do with pearls? They trample it, they destroy it, and Jesus is saying, listen, your judgments, they might be right. They may be treasures to you, but he's saying, listen, when you lob them to other people and you drop those truth bombs, the question is, can they receive them? Are they in a heart place to be able to receive them from you? 
Can they do anything with them? And Jesus' encouragement to us is that we proceed with wisdom. We don't just say true things. We say things that are both true and we say things that are helpful. Because what's our goal? Restoration and wholeness. That Jesus might enter in and he might begin to heal our hearts. We don't say this is a pearl and you should want it. How dare you not want this pearl? We've got to be more discerning. We've got to pay attention to timing. It matters in the way that people perceive things. We pay attention to motivation, where we're coming from. Where is our heart at in this confrontation? The desire isn't just to be right, it's to be helpful. I've heard it said that being a pastor would be really easy if it weren't for the people. And there's probably not a truer statement made. But that's not what God's called us to. You could, you could say that it would be easier to grow in our relationship with Jesus if it wasn't for the people. But we all know that there is a relationship that we are cultivating in our, that is both horizontal and vertical, that our relationship with God and our relationship with people, that we are to love God and love people, and there is no better place to learn patience and kindness and forgiveness and self-control than in the close quarters with other believers and other people. That in our relationships, that's where those kinds of things are being cultivated. Because of that, I leave you with these final words from Neil Anderson. He says, Anybody can find character defects and performance flaws in another Christian. But it takes the grace of God to look beyond an impulsive Peter to see, him, see in him the rock of the Jerusalem church. It takes the grace of God to look beyond Saul, the persecutor, to see him as the apostle. So as you live day to day with people who are sometimes less than saintly, and see you exactly the same way. And I simply just say this morning, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray.